This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Curl Up With A Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. I am, of course, Gwen Cooper, your host, and delighted, as always, to be here with you bright and early, actually pre-dawn and early on Sunday morning, which is when I am recording this podcast, although you, of course, are probably listening to it at a much more civilized hour. Coming up later in this episode, I will be answering a reader question. But first, a little bit of, of housekeeping, uh, just as an FYI. There will be two missing episodes, I guess, in the month of February or, or two Sundays when I will not be recording a new episode. And that will be the second and third week in February. And that is because Lawrence and I are taking a trip. Lawrence is turning 60 this year, which, oh my God, I cannot believe. Um, and it, it's just so funny. The, the reason why I'm sitting here agog is not just for the milestone itself, but also because 10 years ago this week, Love Saves the Day was published for the first time in hardcover. I cannot believe that it has been 10 years. Good God. Um, but yeah, it also, you know, so, so 10 years ago this week, I was knee deep in not only book promotion, but in planning Lawrence's 50th birthday. And here we are at 60. It does not seem like 10 whole years have passed, but apparently they have. And so we are going on a trip uh, for Lawrence's 50th. We, we did a big surprise party for his 60th. We are going on a trip and we have been saving our pennies for a long time. And we are taking a two-week trip to Egypt, Jordan, and Israel which we are, of course, very excited about. This is a trip we've been wanting to take for a long time. Actually, Lawrence's main interest was in Egypt. That was where he really wanted to go. And I did not want to visit Egypt without going to Israel, because it's not like Lawrence and I have – it's not like we spend that much time in the Middle East. This will, in fact, be a first trip for both of us. And so that being the case and seeing how it's taken Lawrence 60 years to make it to the Middle East for the first time, my argument was that we should not assume – that we are going to be making frequent trips to the region hereafter. So we are, we're trying to tie some stuff in. And then, of course, Jordan has Petra, which is another bucket list destination for me, and Wadi Rum, which is the desert where they filmed Lawrence of Arabia, which is my husband Lawrence's favorite movie. Anyway, usually I'm the one who plans all of our trips down to the last detail. I book the hotels, the flights, I arrange for the excursions or tours or whatever it is that we are going to do. I find the restaurants that we're going to dine at. Uh, it, at times it bothers me that, it, that it's such a wifely thing to do and that it's always me. I, I just do the lion's share of the work whenever we take a trip. And I always say to Lawrence, you know, one of these days I would love to go on a vacation where all I have to do is show up. And for, in fairness to Lawrence, by the way, it should be added that I actually do enjoy all of the planning. I, I did events, uh, event production professionally for a long time, as as those of you who've listened to this podcast for a while may know. 
And I just, I like logistics and I also, it, it sort of suits my verging on anxious, but not quite anxious personality, let's say, to try to think through all of the things that might go wrong and then plan contingencies. This Now I'm talking about event production. I, I don't necessarily expect things to go wrong on a vacation, although, of course, anything could go wrong at any time. Now I, I don't want to wander too far down this dark corridor in my psyche. But anyway, th- so this trip, though, we, we are actually having a professional travel agency plan. And that is, of course, because – well, for two reasons. The first reason being that I I cannot speak or read Arabic at all. I can read Hebrew phonetically, uh, by which I mean to say that I can tell you how – I could read something aloud. I could pr- pronounce the, the letters correctly. But – my grasp of the language, which was never great, has really atrophied over the years to the point that I know maybe five or six words in Hebrew. I certainly could not carry on a conversation. So it is for the best. Plus, we are within two weeks, we are going to be traveling quite a bit. It's one of those trips where over the course of 14 days, we are going to be in six different hotels. Seven, if you count the hotel that we will be checking into on our very last day, we're not going to sleep there, but our return flight is a 1 a.m. red eye. So we're going to spend the day in Tel Aviv and we needed a place to leave our luggage um, to potentially take a quick nap or shower before we leave for the airport for our 1 a.m. return flight. So we we got an inexpensive hotel room. So if you count that inexpensive hotel room in Tel Aviv, then it, it's seven hotels in 14 days. It's going to be a lot of moving around. Um, I, I am very excited about the trip, although I will say I, I think this is probably going to be the last trip that I'm going to want to take for a while, where we're going to a part of the world where I know that there are many street cats who are not well cared for. And I know that this is the case throughout the Middle East, um, including in Israel. Uh, it, it, again, longtime listeners will know that this was a concern that I had before going to Greece and Albania. And it was not as bad in Greece as I had feared, although there, there were a couple of really sad encounters and so it just, you know, it is what it is. I, I, this is part of traveling the world and seeing things that are worth seeing. But by the same token, there is I, – I just always have this this kind of low-level feeling of dread when I know that I'm going to be going to a situation where – I mean, if I'm being honest, what I'm dreading almost more than seeing – or the potential of seeing cats who are not in great shape is that feeling of I have to do something warring with my knowledge that there, there's really not much that I can do – um, there is a wonderful cat rescue in in Israel called Chachi's Haven, and they email me and write to me all the time, and I would encourage listeners to get to know them a little bit better. But of course, this is one of the things, right, that we learn with traveling the world is that we cannot solve the world's problems. You know, it's it's interesting, though, and I, I don't know if I've ever talked about this or, or how many people would know this, but right before... COVID. So so certainly it was not good timing on my part. Um, but I was shopping around a treatment for an unscripted television series. And I will 
actually, it's I, I encountered it a couple of days ago. I had not thought about it for a while. But I was recently just, you know, cleaning out some old computer files, et cetera, et cetera. And I read it for the first time in several years. And and you know what? I'm actually going to let the title and this uh, two-paragraph description paint the picture for you. I'm sure you'll grasp the point of it very quickly. And so it was for an unscripted series called The Catsidental Tourist. And uh, here, here's the, the write-up or the beginning of the write-up that I created for the treatment explaining what the show is about. Um, the Catsidental Tourist is a globe-spanning travel show for cat lovers in the spirit of Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, locating cats in unexpected, offbeat, and jaw-droppingly beautiful destinations both far-flung and close to home, hosted by New York Times bestselling author Gwen Cooper. From the cats who prey alongside Buddhist monks in Japan and Thailand to the royal guard cats of China's Forbidden City. From the cats who dwell in Istanbul's mosques to the cats who defend the treasures of Russia's czars. From the surf-loving felines of Sardinia's Cat Beach to London's official government mousers. From the highbrow art of Amsterdam's Cat and Cabinet to the quirky kitsch of Asheville's American Museum of the House Cat. The Catsidental Tourist explores cat mania far beyond internet memes and as an integral facet of cultural identity, a common cause uniting people of vastly differing faiths, ethnicities, and backgrounds around the world. So that was the general idea for the show. You can tell already that it's dated because of the reference to Russia. Um, And there's so many, I mean, it's actually in Russia that the idea for this show was born. and, And I will tell you that story in a moment. Um, I still think it's actually a great idea for a show. And I, I, I did um trademark the 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 name and the log line and the concept. Um so I, I still I, I, I guess I'm I'm sitting on the idea of this. Now, you know, now it's the kind of thing I think rather than trying to get like a you know, interest at Netflix or something like that in it, I would almost rather raise the money and do it as a YouTube series. Uh, because I really, and again, I really have to thank my my Patreon community for this, but I'm really embracing the self-sufficiency of keeping everything in-house, of of being in control, of, of writing my books and publishing my own books and doing all of the marketing and advertising and promotion and, and all of that myself. So it's still an appealing idea. But the idea for this show was initially born in Russia. Um, or as a result of something that happened in Russia. So right before Homer's Odyssey was first published in 2009, Lawrence and I took a brief trip to St. Petersburg in Russia, and we went to the Hermitage Museum, which is, after the Louvre, probably the world's, certainly one of the the world's largest um, and most important collections of pre-modern art. Uh, by pre-modern, I mean, in other words, before, you know, pre-20th century art. And by the way, I know nothing about art, so <laughs> please forgive me for for butchering any any terms or misnaming anything. But anyway, the point being, we're in the Hermitage, um, which, like the Louvre, used to be a royal palace. It is now a museum, and we were we were on a private tour. We had a, t- a tour guide who was taking us through the galleries, and we turned a corner. We we actually walked through a, a very short corridor that was collect connecting two galleries. We turned a corner. And I suddenly got a very strong smell of cat urine, 
which is a very distinct, if, if you are a cat person, and I am assuming you are, if you are listening to this podcast, is a very, very distinct smell. There really is just no mistaking it for anything else. And I said something to Lawrence. I whispered to him like, oh, I guess there are, there are cats here. And Lawrence like, what are you talking about? And I said, I mean, you can smell the cat pee. And he said, you're crazy. There, there can't be cats living in the Hermitage. And I said, I don't know what to tell you, man. I just, the, the nose knows. And that, that we are smelling right now, that is for sure cat pee. Anyway, we, we asked our guide and it turns out that yes, there are cats who live in the Hermitage, which many of you may know already. This was news to me back in the summer of 2009. Um, but there are cats who live in the Hermitage and, and basically, and they have been there for, there have been cats in the Hermitage for hundreds of years and they are there to protect the art from mice and rats, and they have their own caretaker, and and it's the the cats of the Hermitage is, is kind of a whole thing. There there have been books written about them, and so on and so forth. And anyway, but this became something that that as Lawrence and I traveled to different places, that I began to notice when we went to Rome, and and there are cats on the Roman ruins, which again is is very common knowledge now, but at the time that was not something I knew. And not only that, but there is an organization of women, the, the Guitare, they're called, uh, which is Italian for cat lady. And it's an organization of, of Guitare, and they take care of the cats who live at the Roman ruins, or at least, you know, specific sites. Um, they feed them and, and provide them with medical care and so on and so forth. They are still feral cats. These are feral cat communities. But um, it became a common thread. And the more I started looking into it, the more I found that there were so many destinations around the world where either cats were hanging out, probably because there were so many people there, or that were specifically devoted to cats. Uh, there are temples, uh, Buddhist temples in Japan and, and Vietnam and other places in the Far East where the monks do take care of cats and and they see it as a sacred and religious duty. And of course, if you were listening to the show, you are probably familiar with Cat Island. If you are not, I encourage you to look it up. There are amazing videos from Cat Island. Um, when I went to London for Cat Fest, I was able also to meet the official government mouser who lives at 10 Downing Street in London and to visit some of London's cat cafes. I actually did not want the show and I still would not want it to, to cover cat cafes, which I, I view as a whole separate phenomenon. And I think somebody could almost do a show where they travel around the world looking at cat cafes specifically but but this was this was my idea but the one and and the point that I guess I'm building up to now is the one thing though that I was adamant about is that I did not what I did not want the show to be about was going to places like Morocco or um Dubai or other places in the Middle East where yes there are cats there but they are street cats who nobody is taking care of and who are therefore not in particularly good shape. And the reason I didn't want to do that is because I, I think that would be a different kind of show, certainly a much sadder show. And so when I was putting this treatment together, I, I really did end up finding just hundreds of destinations on, on every continent, literally, except for Antarctica. And so many of them were so many great destinations in Russia. You know, again, at the time that I was writing this, Russia had not invaded Ukraine. Russia was not our enemy. And and tra there was a lot, it was a lot easier to travel to Russia. And there were just so many great destinations throughout Russia that um 
Yeah, and 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 it really is a shame that that this is that the world has changed in this direction. Let's say since I started working on this. Anyway, COVID happened, and and the idea sort of died there. Uh, maybe it is worth taking a look at it again. But the point being that I did consciously avoid the kinds of places that I'm going to be traveling to specifically on this trip. And that is because it's it's just, you know, the sight of, of sad and uncared for cats is certainly not something that I would want to subject viewers to um, and is absolutely not something that I am looking forward to subjecting myself to. So I hope that I am really building up in my imagination how bad it is and that it is not going to be bad and that I will not see things that that make me sad and break my heart. So keep your fingers crossed. And and Greece, by the way, turned out not to be bad at all. And Albania, I, I guess, could have been worse, let's say. And at least the, you know, I was able to help a few cats, a few individual cats along the way. So we'll see how this trip goes and fingers crossed. But I'm also using this trip as an opportunity. And and for the record, I don't want to be melodramatic about this. I am traveling to a part of the world that is somewhat more dangerous than other places to which I've traveled, but we are going to be sticking to, you know, very well-trod tourist areas. So it is what it is. Um, I, I don't want to be melodramatic about it, but I am using this as an opportunity to update instructions about what should be done or or how to care for my cats if, God forbid, anything happens to Lawrence and me while we are gone. And I obviously realize, and that is part of the reason I'm working on this also, that I could get into the car tomorrow and and get into a fatal accident. And I, I, I don't want to dwell too much on, on the negatives. That is not the point of this. But sort of relevant to what we were discussing in last week's podcast, obviously, you do not have to be an older person or in poor health to die. Uh, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it, but, you know, crazy things happen all the time. And this is why it is good, even if you are relatively young or actually young or in the the very pink of good health, you should still do some planning for the contingency scenario in which your cats outlive you, because it is absolutely a thing that could happen even to the best and brightest of us. And so I'm updating um, my information. And, you know, so I find myself, I, I, I'm writing, I'm, I'm trying to give a brief description of Clayton and Fanny's personalities for anyone who might adopt them after me, or who might be trying to help find the right home for them after me. Um, one of the challenges for me in this, so, you know, it's so funny, because I feel like probably anybody listening to this show knows about as much about Clayton and Fanny as certainly as I could give as an overview, right? I have written extensively about these two cats. So if you've read My Life in a Cat House, if you've read the sequel to Homer's Odyssey, certainly if you subscribe to my Curl Up with a Cat Tail short story series, then you probably know Clayton and Fanny reasonably well. You know that Clayton had urinary tract, a urinary tract blockage when he was very young and that this is still something that we are careful of. 
Whereas Fanny, you know, and, and so we don't give Clayton dry food, whereas Fanny is addicted to dry food. And you know that Clayton likes to play fetch and you know that he is he actually enjoys going to the vet's office because Clayton is such a social cat that he will take his social interaction any place he can get it, even among people who stick him full of needles. And there all there's all kinds of information like that that you know, and you could probably make some reasonable inferences about whether or not Clayton and Fanny would be good with children, for example, which they would be. Um, the challenge for me is that so there there are two people who I would probably entrust with the responsibility of rehoming Clayton and Fanny if God forbid something were to happen to Lawrence and me, and that is my sister. And my best friend from college who is an, also an animal rescuer and and loves animals as much as I do. And either of these two people might actually take the cats themselves, by the way, but they also have dogs. I'm not sure how it would all work out. It might make more sense for them to to rehome the cats. I, I, I don't want to go too far again down this morbid path, but part of the challenge for me in leaving instructions and writing information is, is that my sister and my best friend um, have not read anything that I've written. My, my best friend has not read anything that I've written since my, my very first book, Diary of a South Beach Party Girl, which has nothing to do with cats at all. And my sister's not, to my knowledge, read anything that I have written. And I uh, and I can actually call them out about it on this podcast because I, I don't think they listen to the podcast either. And on the one hand, I look, they, they are friends and family. They, they are not fans. It is not their obligation to, it is not anybody's obligation, obviously, to read things that I write or to listen to podcasts that I produce. Um, but by the same token, it does. I, I am sort of starting from scratch in trying to explain Clayton and Fanny's personalities to them. Um, my sister lives in D.C. My best friend lives in Connecticut. We get together. Uh, my sister does not has not spent a ton of time in our house with our cats. My sister also has. I should say, in fairness to her, she has a lot of, of chronic health problems that make it difficult for her to travel and, and to do a lot of things. And, and again, that is its own whole separate thing. So, but I but I am starting from a, <laughs> I, I really am trying to explain from scratch what my cat's personalities are and and what they are like. And, you know, it's it's also one of those things like once you start, it, it can be very difficult to stop, which is one of the reasons that I keep writing about my cats, because as anyone who loves talking about their cats knows, once you start talking about the specific things that make your cat unique and adorable and and a paragon among all cats, the the very quintessence of, of catness, um, it, it is difficult to stop doing that. And as I should know, as I have expended many, many hundreds of thousands of words talking about my cats or writing about my cats. So that is what I've been doing. And, and of course, then there's the unbearable thought. And I'm sure everybody thinks this. Like, like I am sure that anybody listening to this podcast, if it came down to it, and somebody listening, one of the people who listens to this podcast or, or one of the people who's part of my Patreon community were to be the person who ended up adopting my cats, I have no doubt in my mind that any of you could could love my cats and treat them as well as I do. And yet it is also just so incredibly sad, and I'm sure this is the case for everybody, right, to think about anybody other than you 
at some point having custody of your cats and not just because it would mean that something bad had happened to you, but also because you just inevitably have this feeling that nobody else could possibly know and understand your cats as well as you do. And I, you know, Clayton needs so much love and so much attention and, 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 would somebody else be able to give him as much love and attention as, as he's gotten used to getting over the years? And Fanny, who has her little routines, or she needs she needs lap time first thing in the morning and late at night. You know, I give it to her first thing in the morning and Lawrence gives it to her late at night. But, but that's just undivided lap time where she gets a good at least 10 minutes in our laps without Clayton bothering her, which is not something that happens most other times of the day. Clayton is usually happy to bother Fanny, but this is between the two of them. They seem to have worked out this uh, arrangement that Clayton will not bother Fanny if she is in my lap early in the morning or in Lawrence's lap late at night. And, you know, Clayton likes to eat little bits of turkey from the table when Lawrence is having a turkey sandwich, which is not something I condone, but it is something that Lawrence has over the course of a decade, it gotten him in the habit of being used to. And and so who am I to to break with what is now a longstanding tradition? But And I know that everything I'm saying is something that somebody else could figure out about them eventually. But there's still, there's just that, you know, there's just that feeling that, that nobody can love your cats as well as you love your cats. And that to me, and I, and I know that, but that that to me is is when I confront the idea of my own mortality. That to me truly is the saddest and most unbearable thought: is what would happen to my cats, and who could possibly love my cats as well as I do, as well as they deserve to be loved. Um, I, I guess I have to hope that's that the answer to that question is either a, it doesn't matter because it will never come up, or b that they will end up with someone who who could love them as much as I do. But let us keep our fingers crossed that nothing negative is going to happen on this trip. Um, really, my the bigger fear, the more realistic fear that I have, as I said before, is, is a scenario where I'm confronting street cats who are not in good shape and where my heart is just continually broken along the course of this trip. So hopefully that will remain a somewhat unrealized fear. And I look forward to letting all of you know about it when I return. And possibly it is time to uh, dust off the Catsidental Tourist idea and start moving forward with it again. Although I do have to say that, that honestly, the idea of extensive travel is not quite as appealing to me now as it was pre-pandemic. I cannot lie. And that is partly because of the pandemic itself. I think we were all a little naive about prior to this about the possibility of something like this happening in real life and not just in a movie like Contagion, which is really where I always assumed that this this kind of scenario would be left. It would be the realm of movies and not of real life. In fact, it is the realm of real life. And now that I know that it it, it does, I still travel and I still want to travel, but I don't know that I want to be traveling as much as I initially thought that I might want to be traveling. Um, but also because I, you know, the, the pandemic, I guess, is the first time for a lot of us, right, that we really slowed down and really began to focus on life in our homes. And for some people, that was an utter misery. And I and I understand for some people, it was worse than miserable, right? There are people whose homes are not safe. They live with abusive parents or abusive spouses. And, and so this was obviously a scenario that affected everybody in a different way. Um, but 
I really did find that I enjoyed slowing down and and just really focusing on what was inside my home and what was in front of me. And again, the the, the cats and I and, and Lawrence and the cats and I, who were already pretty well bonded, uh, really did become even closer and more tightly bonded to the point, again, I, th- I am utterly miserable. I'm so excited about this trip, but I am also utterly, utterly miserable that I'm going to be leaving the cats for two weeks and they have a wonderful pet sitter who I know spends time with them and keeps them company. But even still, I, I know they are just, they are sad when we're gone. I, I suppose the one good thing that can be said for how sad we all are when we're separated from each other is how happy we all are when we are reunited. Uh, I I know coming back from a trip, uh, just that ride, and we live only about 15, 20 minutes away from the airport, so it is not a particularly long ride as as far as airport trips go. Uh, But just when I'm finally, finally in the car on my way home from the airport, it's I I feel like I could get out and, and push the car. I'm just so anxious and so eager to walk in the door and see the cats that it it is physically painful for me to still be in transit. And it is always just such a great moment when I walk in the front door and and see their little faces again. And on that note, I'm going to take a very short break of about 30 seconds or so. And when I come back, I will be answering a reader question. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, and stick around for more Curl Up With a Cattail. Thanks so much for sticking around. This week's reader question comes to us from Natalie Norris. And Natalie wants to know, which of my books is my own personal favorite? And wow, is that kind of a hard question to answer? Although it's certainly a fair enough question. It it is kind of right, like like trying to choose among your children. Who, Who do you love the most? Which of my books is my favorite, my personal favorite among my books? I, I will say up front, so probably my least favorite is Love Saves the Day. And the reason why Love Saves the Day is my least favorite among my books is because I, I feel that with a little more time, I could have done a better job with it. So the and and the story behind that is that and this is something I, I you know I, I frequently say when I teach a, a when I'm teaching at a writing workshop, I always tell writers not to be afraid to erase something that you've written, even if it's something you're really attached to, even if it's something you really like. Um, sometimes you have to write something all the way through and see what it's not supposed to be before you know what it is supposed to be. And so I had a similar experience with Love Saves the Day. I spent a year writing a draft and I came to the end of it and I realized that the whole thing had to be changed, that that what I had initially thought the story and the pace and, and et cetera, et cetera, were, were going to be were in fact not what they were supposed to be. And I had a very clear idea of what it was supposed to be. The only problem was that I was at that point within three weeks of my deadline for the book. And at, at that, and I'd already gotten some extra time. So it was a pretty inflexible 
deadline at that point. Um, and I did, and I did it. I rewrote the whole book within that two to three week period. I, I did need to spend that year writing it and seeing what it wasn't supposed to be before I could see what it was supposed to be. But the result of that is is has always been my feeling that it's it's a first draft almost, and that there are things that I could have, and and there is a whole editing process, and I did get to go through it with my editor. Um, but you can't like completely rewrite during the editing process. And so there's always been a part of me that feels that if I had had another six months, let's say, I, I could have really, really just made it exactly what I wanted it to be. And, and so, and and it's the only book that I feel that way with, where I feel like the finished version is maybe not exactly what the finished version should be. And I, I am always, it is always immensely flattering and pleasing to me when people write to me or leave comments on, on social media saying, or on Amazon saying how much they love Prudence and how much they love Love Saves the Day. And I know that Lawrence, actually for Lawrence, it's his favorite among the things that I've written. Um, and I've heard that expressed by other people as well. I actually put something up about Love Saves the Day on Homer's Facebook page a few days ago. And one of the first comments was from somebody saying, still Gwen's finest work to date, which <laughs> bums me out a little because I've that came out in 2013 and I've done quite a few things since then. But I will take the point. And um, so yeah, there there are some people who actually prefer it and and I, I guess who do not read it and think, wow, here's a book that needs a lot of major rewrites. Uh, but that is my own feeling. And and what can you do? You, you know, sometimes I, I guess uh, the things that you see in your work as writer are not the same things that other people see in it as readers. Um, but if you were to ask me what my favorite book is, and, and see, this is where it gets a little tricky for me, because my favorite book in terms of just the writing both how how I felt about writing it and and how I feel about the finished product would probably be my life in a cat house. I just feel again for me personally, I feel like reading Homer's Odyssey and then reading My Life in a Cat House, which was written ten years later. To me, I, I feel like I, I see my my growth as a writer. I just feel like the the quality of the writing and storytelling in My Life in a Cat House. Is is to me my favorite among all of my writing and storytelling efforts. Again, I know that this is not the consensus opinion. Probably the consensus opinion would be Homer's Odyssey. And I and I do want to point out again, it's it's so hard to talk about what I love more or what I love less because I do truly love all of them. Much like I have, I love all of my cats in this as I love all of my cats equally, but I've had a different relationship with each and every one of them. So the, the relationship that I have with Clayton is not identical to the relationship I had with Homer or with Scarlet or with Fanny, et cetera, et cetera. And I would say that the same thing is true of my books. They they represent different things to me. I have different relationships to them. And that is based on both the subject matter of the book and how difficult or easy it was for me to write and the the process of selling that book or what was going on in my life at the time that I was working on. And all of these things kind of come together and affect how you feel about a book. And I do know, again, that the consensus opinion would certainly be that that Homer's Odyssey is is most people's favorite. Um, for me, it's my life in a cat house, and and that's what really bums me out about the fact that um, things ended so badly with my publisher. And I've talked about this in earlier podcasts. I don't want to go down this road too far. 
except to say that that the experience of the experience of writing my life in a cat house was pure and unadulterated joy and i loved it and i love the finished product um the experience of publishing my life in a cat house literally almost killed me um and and i actually use the word literally literally it is a pet peeve of mine when people say literally when they mean figuratively when people use the word as an intensifier as if it meant very um i am literally exploding with anger right now is is not a thing unless you are in actual fact exploding i get very persnickety about the meanings of words and correct usage and things like that i know i'm a curmudgeon blah 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 it is what it is it's, I, I got to be me. Um, so when I say that the experience of publishing my life in a cat house literally almost killed me, I, I mean that very seriously. Um, I do not want to go too far down the path of telling the story, uh, but I will say that I was working with a different publisher on this book than I had with my previous books. And I, it was not a good experience. It did not go well in the end. And for the better part of a year, and again, this is something that I've talked about on this show, I can honestly say that I, I, the only reason I, I didn't, I didn't want to live. I did not want to be alive anymore. I, I genuinely didn't want to live. I, I don't know if, if anybody listening knows that feeling where you wake up in the morning and truly your first thought is, <sighs> great. Another day I have to get through um, where where you're, you're kind of bummed that you didn't just die in your sleep. God forgive me. And I, I know these are terrible things to say. And and I, I cannot say that I was actively suicidal, um, although I think the only reason I was not actively suicidal is because I, 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 I couldn't do it to my cats. And that does not mean that it would not have been a terrible, terrible thing to do to my husband or my mother or my sister. Um, although when you are feeling that bad, when you are at that low a place, you, you really have convinced yourself that everyone would be better off without you, or certainly that they wouldn't be any worse off without you, or that even if that's not true, that you are in so much pain that nobody has the right to ask you to keep going through that much pain. Um, but I could never convince myself that my cats would be better off without me. I guess I'm circling back to the earlier part of today's podcast. Um, I certainly could not convince myself that my cats didn't have a right to expect me to keep going for their sake, only because that that was the obligation that I undertook when I adopted them, um, was to take care of them to the best of my ability, no matter what. And the fact that they cannot take care of themselves and they cannot speak for themselves makes that obligation greater and not less. And, you know, we talk all the time about how our cats save our lives sometimes. And and I can honestly say that this was a scenario where my cats truly and literally, and again, I, I do mean, I'm using the word literally as the, the literal definition of the word literally here. Uh, my cats literally did save my life. I, I don't think I would have made it through without them, without them to live for and also without them, you know, there was always, I mean, something, no matter how bad a day w- was, there there was always something good in that day because it was still always a day where a purring fanny spent 10 minutes in my lap in the morning or or a purring Clayton spent <laughs> much longer than that on my lap in the afternoon or where they did something that, that made me laugh 
or that made me say, ah, or that just reminded me that even though I was at a bad place in my life, there, there were still so many wonderful things in the world. Um, and, you know, so my life in a cat house is in many ways, I, I guess it's, it's not only, it's not only the, the writing in that book, which again is my favorite of all my writing. And, and my absolute favorite story in that book is the first one, I Choo Choo Choose You, the story that I wrote about Scarlet. Um, I, I just love that story. And, and I loved writing about Scarlet. So, so there is all of that. I, I just really, I loved the book and I loved the experience of writing, writing it. And I do feel, for me personally, I, I feel like it's the best writing that I've done. But I guess it's, it's also really now tied up with this very difficult time in my life that that came apart, although it's not the book's fault, but came about because of the experience of publishing that book. Um, so it is also a reminder to me, and I think it's an important thing for all of us to remember sometimes, that that when things get bad, and things can get so bad that you just can't even imagine how they could ever be better, uh, but nothing stays the same forever. And that can certainly be the negative thought that grows through goes through your head when you're very, very happy. The thought that I am so happy right now, but inevitably something will happen to make me less happy than I am. But the flip side of that is also true when you are as, as low as you can possibly be, when, when, when it just feels like the day-to-day -day experience of trying to get through your life is a nearly unbearable ordeal. It, it is important to remember that as unbelievable as it might seem at that moment, that feeling is not going to last forever. You are not going to feel that way forever. Your life is not going to be that bad forever. You really do just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and, and keep doing that until the, the, the wheel spins around again, which inevitably it does. When you're up, you will eventually come down. But when you are down, you will eventually end up back on top. And so there are a lot of feelings for me uh, that are tied up in that book that that even separate and aside from the book itself, even separate and aside from the writing, there are a lot of feelings for, tied up for me in that book and what that book represents about my life and, and, a, and a turning point in my life. And it, it really was the impetus for me to, to embark on the path of self-publication which has had its own ups and downs, but has been such and, and continues to be such an educational experience. There are so many more practical skills that I have. There's so many more things that I know and uh, than I did when I first made the decision as a result of my life in a cat house to, to self-publish. And I continue to learn. I continue to take classes again. I really want to thank my Patreon community, um, not only for their incredible emotional and moral support, but also for the practical assistance that their support has given me in, in taking these courses and enabling me to educate and improve myself. So that is the answer to the question, which of my books is my favorite book? Probably not the answer that anyone was expecting. Um, which is probably why no one has ever asked me that question before. But there you have it. And with that, I'm going to say goodbye for now. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you'll join me again next week for another all new episode. 
And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cattail with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline-loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book, or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts, head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me, and don't forget to hug your cat today.